Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we discuss the books and ideas which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. Today I have Brian Julian back with me to discuss the epistemological work of Kant. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Gil. This term, we have been discussing what we could call early modern philosophy. And we've been particularly interested in epistemology, which is the study of how we know what we know. Kant, in many ways, ends the period of early modern philosophy, and basically he starts a new venture, as it were, into modern philosophy. So... This is going to wrap up this term of epistemology that we've been working through in our last several episodes of this podcast. Brian, could you give us a brief biographical overview of Kant? When is he? Where is he? And what setup do we need to understand his philosophical project? Immanuel Kant, he was living in the 1700s. It's easy just to call him a German philosopher. He technically lived in Prussia, and where he lived is now part of Russia, but (laughs) he spoke German, so we'll just call him German. Kant was very involved in the philosophical dialogue of his time. He wrote things throughout his life, but it's particularly noteworthy how he, towards the end of his life, came out with a series of several radical books, all in this period of about a decade. In the 1780s, he came out with books on epistemology, theory of knowledge, like we'll talk about here. He came out with books on ethics. He came out with books on aesthetics. And what's noteworthy about Kant is that pretty much everything that he wrote during that period revolutionized the field in which he put it out. He was a huge turning point in the history of thought, and pretty much everybody after him had to respond to him. He was a central figure that, whether people agreed with him or not, he was just one of those people that you had to deal with what he thought. Yeah. I remember when... I was first coming up through Gutenberg, and I think I would have been a sophomore. I remember we had the lecture on Kant, who gets his own whole lecture. He's not, you know, like figures in modern philosophy. One guy gets his whole lecture, and Tim McIntosh was the lecturer. And to start his lecture, he said, I'm going to tell you a bunch of stuff about Kant to try to convey to you how important he was. But if all else fails, he is the most important philosopher after Aristotle. Just have that in mind. Everybody is responding to him in some way after him in an analogous way to how you would relate to Aristotle. So... Now I'm going to talk about his actual ideas and talk about what he's responding to and how that sets the table, but get that in there. <laughs> yes. Now, I now get to give the Kant lecture at Gutenberg, mm-hmm. which I did this term. I maybe put it slightly less big, although that might very well be accurate. I usually just put it as, there's a very good case to be made that he's 
the most important philosopher of the last 500 years. Yeah. He also might be the most important since Aristotle. That is yes. a, that, that is all he's in the running for that position. Yes. And it's very clear when you get into modern or contemporary philosophy, particularly at the beginning of it, that they are responding to Kant. Yes, definitely. Okay, German philosopher, big decade in the 1780s. He's revolutionizing every field of philosophy and he's responding to as I already mentioned, early modern philosophy. So give us a overview of, particularly in epistemology, because that's what we're interested in today. Give us an overview of the main threads in early modern philosophy that Kant was interested in responding to and concluding. Okay. So when we talk about early modern philosophy, that term usually refers to roughly the 16 and 1700s. And it it covers the span that the last several episodes of this podcast have been about, roughly Descartes through Hume. And in epistemology, it's very concerned with wanting to explain how it is that our minds grasp the world outside of us. How are we going to bridge this gap between where our mind is and this world that is outside? And there's various ways of explaining this. There's kind of two main streams that come about. One of which very much comes out of Descartes and Descartes' optimism that reason is going to be able to help us to know everything. If you remember Descartes, he starts with nothing. He starts with, I'm thinking. And from there, he uses reason to prove that God exists and the world exists. And Descartes' very optimistic. And there's a whole line of philosophers following from him that are very optimistic and make very large claims about the nature of God and the nature of the world. And they see reason as doing all sorts of huge heavy lifting at showing us how the world works. So there's an optimistic stream that Kant is responding to, but there's also a skeptical stream that is probably best embodied in someone like Hume, where Hume thinks that there's elements of the world that we might not know, things we take ourselves as knowing that actually maybe we don't know. Maybe the world is not the way that we think it is. And in particular, Hume focuses on something like causation, when I say that there's a cause and it brings about an effect, what do I mean when I say that? And am I saying anything very substantial? Am I actually talking about the world or am I just talking about the way my experience happened to be? So Kant is interested in responding to both this optimistic stream and this skeptical stream in early modern philosophy. How does... Kant, then, if he's interested in responding to this optimistic perspective and this skeptical perspective, how does he respond? Does he respond to those two things differently, or does he think that you can combine them in one thing, or what are his response to those various positions? On the one hand, Kant is very much not a skeptic. He's not tempted by the view that we don't know things about the world. Kant is very convinced that there's all sorts of things we can know. Science is a good example of that. We have, you know, at his time, Newton would have been a central figure in science. And Newton did all sorts of things that sure look like it's describing the world. And Kant 
um, is convinced, look, we can know about the world. We can talk about scientific laws. So on the one hand, he wants to explain why we shouldn't be skeptics, because he's not tempted by skepticism. But he's also a little concerned about the way that these people that are super optimistic about reason and use it to prove everything, he's concerned partly by the way that they all disagree with each other. If you're very convinced that reason is going to tell you what God is like and what the world is like, then it seems like you ought to reach the same conclusions. But there's a whole series of people that all come to different views. His ultimate project is to show what the limits of our reason is. That there are limits to how far we can go with it. They're far enough to let us talk about things like science and laws of science, laws of cause and effect in a way that Hume's philosophy doesn't allow us to do. So the way that Kant addresses this, the way that Kant tries to show the limits of our reason is through a central idea. And his central idea, which is, this is the revolutionary part that everybody ultimately is responding to, is his idea is that our minds are not just contacting a world outside of us, but our minds are actually contributing to our experience of it. When we have experience of the world, I'm not just experiencing the bare world and it's just implanting itself into my mind. I'm not just getting little copies of the world in my mind, but instead the world I experience is actually in large part shaped by my mind. We experience the world as we do because of the way that our mind is set up. One way that we could try to get at what Kant's thinking about here is if you think about, if you have a computer, if you have a, you know, you have this processor that's embedded there inside your computer, and then you have the screen that you're looking at. The two of them are obviously linked. There's a kind of a correspondence between the two of them, what's inside the processor and what appears on the screen. But if you pictured the processor and the screen as each being kind of sentient creatures that were experiencing the world, might be a little strange, but go with me here, their experience of things is very different. So for example, if you could be that processor inside the computer, it would just be electrical signals. That's all that would exist. Ones and zeros, that's everything that's going on in there. Whereas the screen has properties to it that are not inside the computer. The screen has heights and widths. Like, the screen has dimensions. The screen has colors. There are no, there is no purple or green inside the processor. If you open it up, you don't find that anywhere. Whereas the screen, if you want to put it this way, thinks about the world in color and spatially. We could think about this analogously for Kant. If we're the screens and the world is that central processor... Parts of our experience are about the way that we process the data that's coming to us, that we are contributing things like, ultimately, Kant thinks things like space and time come from our minds. That's not an inherent property of the world. The cause and effect that Hume was talking about, that is also contributed by our minds. So there are properties of the world that are supplied by our minds and Th this helps us to see that we can 
talk about the world of our experience. Unlike Hume, who thought that cause and effect was just a habitual response, we experienced event B following event A a bunch of times, and we just form a habit of connecting them. For Kant, cause and effect is something real. It's a real property of our mind that is always there, that is always upon the world. We can't experience a world that does not have cause and effect in it. It's a real property of the world that we experience. But it's not a property of the world apart from our experience. On the one hand shows, look, here's how we can talk about the world that we experience. There's real causal laws because they're supplied by our mind. So we can do more than the skeptics would allow us to do. But on the other hand, we have to recognize that all of these things only apply to the world of our experience. Anything beyond our experience, if we want to start talking about things like God or immortal souls or something like that, that's where we have to say, oh, actually, we can't talk about that. That's where we're going to draw the limit of our reason. We can't go that far. Okay. I want to come back to this issue of things that we don't have access to, like God or our mortal souls. But before that, I want to make sure that we're just very clear on how Kant thinks that our mind is supplying qualities of the world. Let's return to this computer analogy, but let's change it just slightly. And you tell me if I'm getting this right. Many people nowadays will use Google Docs, and many people nowadays will use Microsoft Word. And then there's your computer's notepad, right? So you have txt file, which is what notepad deals with. You've got a doc or a docx file, which is what Word deals with. And then you've got the Google Doc is just a website, but you can download it as any number of different file formats. In Kant's picture of things, there's information that is out in the world, but what my mind is doing in part is taking that information, which if you just took that information raw, would just be a bunch of binary code, just on-off switches, and it changes that into a docx file, and that's what my, as a human being, can only process the world in certain ways. And so our mind is part of the conversion software, as it were, to take all those ones and zeros, which we could look at the ones and zeros, but we wouldn't know that it says once upon a time there was etc. That's the sort of thing that Kant is picturing in terms of what the mind is doing. Yes. And that analogy actually helps point out there's two ways that he would slightly differ by that. Helps, it helps illustrate even more what he's doing. One of those ways is you mentioned for us, when we look at the computer, we can look at the ones and zeros. For Kant, there is no way to access the raw data. We cannot get at what he calls things in themselves. We can only have things within our experience. So we are stuck within that word doc. We do not know what underlies it. That's one thing that that analogy helps illustrate. And another one is, and here's where Kant 
is going to set up a problem for other people later, but it's not a problem for Kant in that you mentioned that there are different word processing programs and so on. For Kant, human rationality is all the same. He thinks that we are all processing the world the same way. So he is not a skeptic. He's not a relativist. He's not saying, oh, well, I process it one way, but you might process it another way. For him, human rationality is just one thing. In fact, it's not even strictly speaking human rationality. Just rationality itself is one thing. So for Kant, the fact that our mind supplies part of the world is not... He's not bothered by potential relativism there, whereas... Later on, this is one of the one of the things that's going to grow out of Kant's philosophy is a skepticism that we are all supplying the world with the same thing, yes. and then we have there's a relativism in the way that yes. we are look, seeing the world. Yes. Okay, let me just give a couple more. I don't know if they're analogies, but they're illustrations or examples to just try to cement this as much as possible. So one of the things that I have been fascinated by recently and I've talked about on other podcasts is Eldritch Horror, which came out of H.P. Lovecraft and so on. And part of the thing that is supposed to be horrifying about Cthulhu, for instance, is that it's actually a thing that your mind can't interpret. It's sort of like sometimes a program will open a file, but it's not really reading the file. And then you just get gobbledygook. And essentially, you know, the Cthulhu monsters or elder ones or whatever they're called are just the kind of thing that human rationality is not built to process. And so if you see it, you just go insane because your mind just doesn't have the wherewithal to deal with whatever it is. And this is something you can do in literature where you're just using words because when you try to illustrate it, you actually have to give things form. And that's part of the thing that is a contention of the premise of the whole thing is how would you even give it form? It's, it's not a right. So that's assuming a Kantian perspective, right? That our mind is making sense of stuff for us in a certain sense. And there are certain things that you would attempt to have the software translate and it just breaks down because it just can't handle presumably the reality of that. Right. I mean, this is fiction, but in the same vein, if you listen to folks talk about like psychedelics, for instance, is you're actually accessing a different reality that your perception usually isn't able to access and that the psychedelics in some way allow you to access that or they re-categorize things so that now you could perceive things that are theoretically always there, but you don't, you didn't have the code, as it were, to translate those things. So both of those, the Eldritch Horror and that view of psychedelics, are both assuming this Kantian framework, right? Like my mind is translating the raw data into something, and with the Cthulhu horror, it's, well... You could never translate that. It's just so far beyond what human software can handle. And the psychedelics, it's opening up a new function, as it were, of the software. But they're both holding baseline that your mind is doing that conversion of the raw data. That is kind of what Kant is talking about. Yes. Uh, although Kant is 
distinctly more boring than either of those examples that you brought up. And this is sometimes, we were talking before we started recording, you said one of the tricks about talking about Kant is not getting into the weeds because Mm -hmm. it gets very, he talks about a priori and a posteriori and analytical versus synthetic kinds of reasonings. And we're not going to talk about all of that stuff. And so it can feel very dry, but that's his that's his insight, right? Is that this contribution your mind is making to your experience is that conversion that is then assumed by those other two more fanciful analogies. And they are also going a little farther than he would in that for our experience of the world is completely processed through our mind. So I don't think he would have a category of something that I can't process. Because every like the world just is processed by my mind, and anything that lies outside of it is just not part of my experience at all. So he is more boring in that way too. There's not some sort of psychedelic experience that's going to get me in touch with things outside of my experience. For Kant, we are emphatically limited to our experience. There is no way for us to go behind that experience in a way that some of these other thinkers that you talk about. People get really interested after Kant in the question of, well, what about that world behind my experience? Could I get that somewhere? And Kant just gives an emphatic no. He's just like, nope, we can't go there. You get a lot of the fantastical notions. But as you said, this is why Kant is so foundational. If you don't have the notion that my mind is limiting my experience to something that I can understand. Mm-hmm. You don't get Cthulhu horror. You don't get psychedelics. You don't get fairy tales where some people can see fairies and magic and whatnot, right? That's all over our culture. Those seem some way downstream from this idea that Kant is trying to lay out. Yes, Kant really introduces the idea that our minds are contributing to the world we experience and that gives a lot of places for people to go afterwards from there. Okay. I think we've talked about this at some length and hopefully that was clear. So let's return to this issue of the limits of our reason. It seems that particularly with somebody like Descartes, he thinks that he can reason his way to God and he can reason his way to other sorts of metaphysical or transcendent realities just by thinking about them. And Kant is skeptical of this. Lay that out more. What is his move where he decides that is the case? Kind of three traditional questions. There's probably more questions we could raise up, but there's three main ones that have been central philosophical questions, central theological questions. And Kant is responding to all of them in a way. And so questions like, is there a transcendent God who created the world? Question like, do we have non-material souls? Do we live on after death because our soul survives? And also questions of freedom. Am I free or am I determined? People before Kant, people like Descartes, think that we can answer these questions. Descartes has proofs for the existence of God. And Descartes has proofs for what our soul is like. Our soul is a substance, our soul persists, etc. And other philosophers have proofs like that as well. For Kant, these are not questions that we can actually answer. 
because they go outside of our experience. I cannot experience the creation of the world. I can't even do it in theory because I'm within the world. I I can't experience things outside of me living here because that's what experience is. I can't access a soul somewhere because everything I experience in the world is a material thing. So because these questions would lead us outside of our experience, Kant thinks they're ultimately unanswerable. He's not saying, and this is actually interesting, Kant is not saying there was no God who created the world. He actually thinks that there's equally evidence that God did create the world and didn't create the world. Actually, I can't remember which way it goes. He, either there's equal evidence for both sides or there's equal denials of both sides. It's one or the <laughs> other of them. But in any case, he thinks God created the world and God didn't create the world have equal weight. We can use reason to get us to exactly the same place with both of them. So because of that, Kant wants to say, okay, we need to put a limit somewhere. We need to be able to say, here's how far we can go with using our reason. So let, let's take an example. A traditional argument for... God creating the world is that there needs to be a first cause. Okay, so we look at how things are right now, and we say, well, there was a state in the world prior to this that caused how things are right now, and then there had to be a state prior to that that caused that, and we keep going back. We keep going to like, well, what caused that state of affairs? What caused that state of affairs? We keep going back and back, and eventually there needs to be a first cause. Otherwise, things would go on forever. There, there always has to be a cause for every effect. So you can't have an infinite chain of causes going backwards in time. So there has to be a first cause. That's God. There's a first cause where God caused the world to be. So Kant says we can go up right to the very edge. We can go up to the point where we want to say, and now there's a first cause. But that would be going outside of our experience. So instead, we can say, well, it looks as if there is a first cause. Our reason makes us think the world looks like there was a first cause to it. The world looks like God caused it. In fact, uh, Kant even goes so far as saying it looks like the world was designed. And we can say that confidently. It looks like the world was caused. It looks like the world was designed. Can we say the... Further step, the world was caused by God. The world was designed by God. No, we cannot do that. The, the very limit we can go up to is to say that the world looks like it was designed by God, looks like it was caused by God. And that's the limit that he puts us at. So on the one hand, that's going to be disappointing to somebody who thinks that we can use reason to prove theological ideas, prove things about God. Kant thinks we can't go there. It's actually also disappointing to a hardcore atheist because Kant thinks the world looks like it was designed. Like, Kant is not going to be okay with the, oh, the world wasn't really designed at all. Like, Kant's actually like, no, it looks like the world was designed. So somebody that's like, there's no, obviously there's no God, Kant thinks that's also false. But we reach this limit where it just looks as if the world was caused or designed, and that's as far as we can go. And and the reason why we can't make the further step from it looks like it was designed to therefore there's a designer 
can you can you just tease out yeah why that's the spot where he stops yep okay good point uh good question um Okay, so let's let's put it in terms of causes when we talk about the first cause. Remember, for Kant, cause and effect is a part of our experience that our mind supplies. Okay, so when we do chains of cause and effect, so if I throw the ball through the window, we can talk about the broken window was caused by the ball and the ball's flight was caused by my hand. Like, that's part of our experience. There's a cause and effect to it because it's within the world of our experience and that cause and effect, the necessity of it is supplied by our minds. So, and that works as long as we stay within the world of experience. I can use this in like historical type studies because I'm staying within the world of possible experience. I can talk about, you know, my parents being the cause of me, even though that wasn't within my actual experience because I didn't exist yet, but it was within possible experience. It's within the, the world that we are we inhabit. Now, if we, so if we keep going back and back and back, my parents were caused by their parents who were caused by their parents and blah, 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 back. You know, we want to make that final step to who were caused by God. The problem is God lies outside the world of our experience. So cause and effect doesn't apply. Cause and effect is supplied by my mind and constitutes the world of experience. So once we go outside experience, cause and effect is not a th- not a thing. Yes. Let me try a different picture. Okay. Because I think I'm grasping, but it's a tricky sort of thing. Very tricky. Okay. Let's use some colloquialisms here. So God creates Adam and will circumvent all of the discussion of the historical Adam, etc. God creates Adam. Adam, you know, sits up and he looks down at his hands. His hands look like the hands of a 35 year old man, which is obviously the prime of life because that's about how old I am at the the time of this recording, right? So, you know, Adam is sort of created in his primacy, but he's one second old, right? So you would, his, the hands that he is beholding are one second old hands, but they look like 35 year old hands. And If we start thinking about that issue, it was just a couple of days ago, because it's, is it the fourth day that we get plants? So he's looking at a two-day-old tree that it looks like a 50-year-old redwood, say, right? So in human experience, the only way that we have to deal with the world is go, okay, what happened before, what happened before, what happened before, right? In our possible experience, we could experience a tree growing from a seed into this, presuming we could live long enough, right? We could see this tree go from being a seed to being a full-grown tree. We don't have any experience of a tree with 50-year-old growth being created instantly. And so what does that process actually like? There's limits on how far we can go back because we just don't have that. What does it even mean to say that the, tr- that the seedling is a 50 year old tree? The process by which you're dealing with past events, they're somehow related to how we see cause and effect happening, right? The, we notice that as human beings, 
gain and age that they look different in certain kinds of predictable sorts of ways. But theoretically, if things are created ex nihilo, there's a point at which, oh, that's actually a two-day-old tree, but it looks like a 50-year-old tree. Or Adam looks like a 35-year-old man, but he's one minute old, right? And, okay, so what was it like before then? Well, we can't, how would we access that? Our categories for dealing with those sorts of things start to fall apart. And so it's a similar sort of move, it seems. Like, yes, this thing looks like it's designed because we have all kinds of experience with things being designed or things being caused. But I don't have any experience of God causing the world to come into being in the sort of raw creation kind of way. We can talk about God causing things to happen, and that's a sort of credible thing. But it's not the same sort of thing that we mean when we say God created the world, right? The categories that we would need to be able to process the world are insufficient to deal with that. Yeah, in particular, think about the sort of questions that are the sort of questions that kids ask that are super hard, like, where is God? Right. Or was there a time before God created the world? Like, yes. these questions of when we talk about God, we at the very least put them outside of space, when we talk about him. Yeah. And depending on who you talk to, we can also put him outside of time. Yeah. So if God is existing in a non-spatio-temporal fashion, and then he creates the world, and suddenly there's space and time, we don't have a category for that. That would be a different sort of thing from what we talk about cause and effect right. being. I mean, the, the reason, and this is what Kant would contend, right? Because mm -hmm. our mind is the software that converts the raw data into what we can understand... The very question assumes the things that Kant is trying to point out. Where is God? Well, space is something that the human mind provides to the raw data. Mm -hmm. Time is a thing that the human mind provides to the raw data, right? The, the closest we can get to God being outside of space and time is to think about things where, in some sense, we live outside of space and time, right? If you film a movie, the creator of the movie doesn't live within the space and time of the film. In film criticism or even in literary criticism and things like that, they talk about the diagesis which is a big word that means like the space and time of the story. The author or the director or even the actor don't exist within the story. They did stuff to make the story. And that's the closest we can get is that analogy is we have space and time that's our own space and time, which is a different space and time than the space and time of the movie, because we could rewind the movie and things like that. But what would it be like if you had a being that didn't even have space and time? Well, we don't even know what that would mean, because our experience is so contingent on space and time and cause. And so Kant's move here is to say, well, I don't even know what it means to have a first cause because all of our experience is just processing things in mid cause mm -hmm. <laughs> as it were. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it means and I can't know what it means. Right. It's an inherent part of my experience to be spatiotemporal and have causes. So I can't conceive of anything outside of that. Right. Right. 
this is some heady stuff and it's hopefully we're doing a good job of explaining sort of the issues that are involved here point out Kant reading him is worse so if, <laughs> yeah. if you think this is hard uh, we're doing a lot of the heavy lifting for you here. yes 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 so okay but I think we do need to move on I know that some of our listeners maybe did not get the opportunity to have something like a Gutenberg education and engage with these things when their minds were impressionable and fresh. Sometimes find the discussion difficult and maybe they have to listen to the same episode a couple of times. And hopefully we've given you all the tools that you need if you listen to this multiple times to start to get a picture. In any case... So because my mind is providing the very categories with which I understand the world, there are certain questions that we come to philosophically where because the only way I can interact with the world is within these categories, those questions become unanswerable. Okay. Yes. So we've talked about Kant's main idea that our mind is contributing to our experience. We've talked about the limits that the way that our mind contributes to that experience limits what kinds of questions that we can ask. What is the result? We mentioned earlier some ways in which the assumptions that Kant is coming to the table with, how those have led to certain kinds of ideas about fantasy and psychedelics as examples. But what are other results of this key idea that Kant is bringing to the fore in his writings? Kant is particularly interested in talking about what reason supplies, about the very structure of our minds, what it supplies to our experience. But this idea that our experience is contributed to by us is one that gets taken in other directions after Kant. So, for instance, the idea that our historical situation shapes our experience of the world or that my culture shapes my experience of the world these are things that we're very familiar with. We're very familiar with nowadays with people talking about how people experience the world differently due to their culture, due to their gender, due to their historical position. That sort of idea, while there's a lot of that that Kant would not endorse, he helps get it off the ground because he's putting out there, he's saying, look, our minds are not just taking in the world bare, but our minds are shaping what we experience. So other people later on will raise, well, there's other things that shape our experience beyond the hardwiring of our mind. So that's one way that people will go with this. So we have the world as we experience it. We have the table I experience it and the tree as I experience it and the planet as I experience it. And so for Kant, there's this thing that corresponds called the thing in itself. That is, what would the tree be like apart from all the things that I bring to it, like space and time and causation and all of that? There is something that it would be in itself, 
but I don't know what that is. And I can't know what it is. I can say nothing about it. To go back to the computer monitor analogy, if I'm the monitor and I'm seeing the tree as being green, I can't say what the tree is inside the processor of the computer. I I don't know that. It's something else. So Kant talks about things in themselves. He's emphatic that there are things in themselves. There is a world out there behind our experience, but we can't say anything about it. So after Kant, people tend to get more skeptical about that as well. The idea that there are things in themselves. What if, eventually the idea goes, what if all there is our experience? There aren't, there isn't some objective reality lying beneath that experience. So if you start putting that idea, there's nothing lying behind our experience, and our experience is shaped by our time and our culture and all of that, then you start to get a really strong relativism. You start to get like, my world is essentially different from other people's worlds. And so that's a consequence that's downstream from Kant. Kant himself would have arguments as to why that's not a good way of thinking about things. But historically speaking, that's where the ball rolled eventually after Kant. Yeah. So we have talked about Kant's main contribution to epistemology. He has a lot of other ideas that relate to ethics, that relate to aesthetics, as you were pointing out. There's a lot of other fields where he has important thoughts, but we've mainly been focusing on epistemology. We talked a little bit about the influence that those ideas had. And for folks who are listening to this, who are Christians, this may all seem very alarming. And we've been talking fairly clinically about Kant's thought and how he thinks about things without injecting much of our own, you know, as Christians, there are certain things that we think are critiquable about where Kant is. And so now we turn to that part of the program where we talk about where is Kant falling short what do we think that he is saying that is important to hold on to? But where does he not go far enough or, or where does he go too far? So let's start with the positives. It seems that Kant is right that our minds do shape our experience. One way we could put it, maybe most straightforwardly, is the world we experience, the way we experience the world is probably not the same way God experiences the world. And as Christians, that's not to say that we have no conception of God or we have no connection to God's world or anything like that. It's just a recognition that, which I think as Christians should be very fundamental, human beings are not God. So it wouldn't be surprising that we experience the world as creatures, as human beings. I don't know how God experiences the world. Maybe God is outside of space and time, in which case, maybe God thinks about the world like the computer. Like, maybe it's all ones and zeros. Probably not. But, you know, I don't know how God experiences the world because God is so different from me. So that can be helpful. One way that it's helpful is it can give us humility. It can give us humility and be like, you know what? Sometimes maybe if the Bible says things about God, I'm like, what? That doesn't make sense from my experience. We might just go, well, actually, maybe that's because God is a lot bigger than me. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. 
So that part of Kant is actually worth taking to mind, that our minds do shape our experience. So the way I experience things might not be the way God experiences things. I think a correlative with that is, I think it's a very modern notion. It's a very Kantian notion. And maybe Kant would take issue with this. But it's a very Kantian notion to have the idea that there is one correct way to describe the world, right? Let me explain a little more what I mean. So you'll see the assumption is the Bible must have the correct scientific articulation of how the world is. And that assumes that there is only one correct articulation for how the world is. And to argue that the categories that the biblical authors were approaching their world were categories that were informed by things like their culture or their time or their mythology threatens that perspective because it means we're not accessing the thing in itself, right? There's a desire to grasp hold of reality in a way that is unimpeachable. This is Descartes' impulse and you go, well, we've defined how to think about science in the correct way. And we don't need to deal with that issue anymore because we've got it. And the notion that the biblical authors would be using metaphors, that they would be talking about their experience rather than the thing in itself, as it were, can be very threatening, partially because of the way that relativism has shaken out. It makes it seem as if our experience, which is different from their experience, couldn't end up contacting each other. So in some ways, ironically, Kant leads to this kind of perspective in that human beings must always process the world in the same way. Many of our analogies hinge on computers, which the biblical authors would not have had access to. Many of our analogies hinge on notions of quantum physics, which the biblical authors would not have had notions to. And there's this idea that if you have the correct way to process the world, if you have the right answer, if you've developed a true science, that anything that the biblical authors might say relevant of the access that they had to ideas, that must be a true articulation of things. And so that can comment on whether our assessment of quantum mechanics as a way of thinking about the world or computer science as a way of thinking about the world, though they're going to say inevitably true things regardless of whether they had access to those things or not, because there's only one way to look at the world. And Kant's perspective that you can't get to the thing in itself means that the biblical authors are trying to talk about something that they have to capture, which is bound by the categories that they can bring to bear. And those categories aren't always our categories. They don't need to have understood that the world spins in the sun in order for them to be grasping at something true. 
because they weren't interested in talking about astronomy per se. They were interested in talking about other things. So I mentioned the the relativism that can come out of Kant because people start bringing in, emphasizing ways that our history, our time, our culture, and so on influence the way that we perceive the world. I don't think they're entirely wrong about that. There is something to that. Our Kant in thinking that everybody is going to perceive the world the same way because we're all rational, that's a holdover of that optimistic strain of early modern thinking that I mentioned. The fact is, as you know, just from talking to people around you, people have minds that are wired differently in significant ways. People will approach the same situation with very different reactions, partly because they're thinking about it entirely differently. And I think that's important to recognize. It's important to recognize that people see things differently, including us and the biblical authors who lived a long time ago, or us and even other people that we meet in our daily lives, recognizing that I don't experience the world bare. My experience is not 100% completely objective. So if somebody disagrees, they're just getting it wrong. That's important to recognize that I'm experiencing the world through my lenses. That's actually really crucial to acknowledge. Now, where we could maybe help Kant out so that we don't end up too far into skepticism in the way that some people after him came around is through acknowledgement that, yes, I see the world through the mental makeup that I've been given and the experiences that I've been given. But we can also, as Christians, say it was God that gave me all those things. So just because I have a different experience from you or I have a different experience from a person who lived 2,000 years ago, doesn't mean that I am not experiencing real aspects of the world. And by real, I mean that I'm not getting at something that is true of things as God thinks about them. If the things in themselves are the way that God thinks about the world, the fact is God is communicating to us. It's not this abstract thing in the way Kant thinks about it, where there's just us and there's the thing in itself sitting over there somewhere, and we have no access to it. The fact is, God is communicating to us through the way he's made us, through scripture. So even if my experience is shaped by my mind and shaped by my culture, and there's aspects of that that I might need to recognize and set aside, oh, that's just a cultural aspect. (laughs) That's not really how things are, how God would look at it. But the fact is that God is communicating to us through our experience. I don't mean that in some sort of God's always whispering us things or something, but just he made us with the kind of mental apparatus that we have. And therefore, The information that the world gives us is communication from God who made that world and who made us. So because that's the case, even though we have different experiences of the world, we can have confidence that we are experiencing the same world back behind the scenes. That in a sense, we do have some information about the thing in itself, even if Kant might be right that we can't experience the thing in itself, but that doesn't mean that God couldn't give us the information we need to know about it. It's so difficult because as we talk about these issues, we are downstream from these ideas. (laughs) When I come to the Bible, 
I'm facing a problem in that the kind of certainty that I want to find in the Bible can be in part due to a real need that I have for confidence in something, but it can also be informed by my assumptions about what kind of thing I can expect it to do for me, which is bolstered by what kind of thing I expect reality is. If I'm coming to the world and I think that I'm processing the raw data to step back and say, I'm actually not processing raw data. <laughs> I have my experience mediated for me by my mind. If I'm not talking about it academically, but I really believe deep down that I should have more certainty about the thing, it's going to feel like making that kind of statement that Kant is making is hedging. That if I believe that I should be given certainty from the Bible, or I should be given a correct assessment of my view of science from the Bible, that to say maybe that's not what it's doing, or maybe that's not what it's talking about, it feels like now you're denying the truth that's there in the Bible. Does that make sense? Like you're dealing with both things. I'm trying to access the truth of the Bible, but I'm also trying to deal with all of the stuff that I'm bringing to the table that's preventing me or making me feel more confident about what I'm getting there. And that's just a really complicated place to be. Yeah, no, it is complicated. Maybe to put Kant back in his context a little bit in terms of what he's doing and maybe illustrate one last time how what he's doing might be helpful. One of one of the views he was responding to was a very simplistic view of the world where my senses just take in little copies of pictures of the world and that's what I have in my mind. It's like a photocopy machine. I'm getting an exact picture of what the world is and I'm just getting this data straight from the world that is the world is basically placing itself in my mind and Kant is coming along and saying, no, our mind is doing a lot of processing. We're not getting the world straight exactly as the world would think of itself, if we want to use that expression. I think that's worth acknowledging. Our minds are not just copies of the world, but our minds shape what we see. So it opens up a huge whole host of questions that's pretty much the entirety of contemporary thought that are very complicated to deal with. But acknowledging that my mind shapes the way I see the world, that's an important acknowledgement. I think in practice, the implications of that can be very uncomfortable. And I think as a Christian, it is important that when we say we're dealing with the world as it is, or we want to deal with the world as it is, that to acknowledge that there is more space there, that I can't grasp the world as it is. It's not nonsense to say, I want to deal with the world as it is, mm -hmm. because I still want to be committed to what understanding as a human being I am capable of. And that's enough to go on for a lifetime. That acknowledging that the way that I process the world is not the same way that God processes the world 
does not mean that, as we've said in other episodes of this podcast, that there aren't stakes to what's going on, that there's plenty of stakes in me just understanding what I can understand. Yeah, a lot of the project for us then is to recognize that my mind and my culture contributes to my experience. And a lot of the work of knowing is figuring out what of that is God communicating about the true world to me through the apparatus he's given me. And what about that is just the apparatus? What about it is just my culture. My culture tells me that a successful career is everything. Right. So recognizing, oh, wait, that's just a cultural thing. I should probably set that aside. What about the world that I experience is truly coming to me as information from God processed in the language I can understand? That's a very complicated question, but that's really the project for us as knowers. And I think part of... What this has driven home to me over my time of thinking about these issues is I'm more and more convinced that the important parts of knowing reality is acting or living according to reality rather than necessarily having articulate knowledge of reality. Yes. If the Old Testament authors are using their frame of reference to get at something real that I am also trying to get at, and while they can communicate what they're trying to get at through their categories, I would be much more comfortable using different categories. It means that the real thing is different from those categories. And I think ultimately the real things are not what we know. Those real things are how we decide to be and how we decide to act. That we're trying to use intellectual and verbal categories to talk about things that aren't necessarily even intellectual or verbal. Like they are, but not ultimately. And I think as somebody who was very interested in abstract thought and intellectualism and all of those sorts of things, it's very uncomfortable to realize that being a really good thinker and articulator of thoughts is not ultimately what is required of me as somebody who would live with reality as it actually is. Yes. Or to put it in another way, you don't have to write like Kant, which you shouldn't, by the way, but you don't have to write like Kant or be able to think like Kant in order to follow God. The important thing is not articulating exactly how the world is, but the important thing is living in the world and following the truth. In some ways, we are reaching one of the areas of thought, and these are ideas that I have been really interested in in thinking about recently. And I feel like I'm really running into the difficulty of articulating them in such a way that it's clear what I'm even talking about. So hopefully that has not been too confusing for folks. And hopefully 
this has been somewhat helpful. Brian, do you have any last things to say about Kant or other things that you think is worth saying in response to Kant that you would like to say now? I think it's helpful to the extent that you try to understand the flow of ideas through history. It is worth grappling with Kant. It is unfortunate that it is worth grappling with Kant because he is so difficult to grapple (laughs) with, but it is worth trying to grapple with Kant because as we started off saying, his impact has been humongous. It's just everybody after him. Everybody directly after him is responding to him and we still live in the shadow of the impacts that he brought about. And Kant is, like most thinkers, he has insight. He, in my view, is correct to recognize the fact that our minds play a role in our experience. In my view, it's also way more complicated than he ends up thinking. (laughs) So as we've just been discussing, it's complex to know what exactly that means, how, what impacts that has for us as knowers. But it's worth acknowledging that point that we're, we're not coffee machines we're shaping what we see it's one of the things that we talked about when we talked about reed with chris was i asked chris do you have any critiques of reed and as i said in that episode we're big fans of reed so you have to get really deep into the weeds to to really point things out about reed but one thing chris said that i think was pretty understandable is reed has this idea of common sense of basic way that human beings process the world. And Chris said, I'm just not sure that the specific things that he articulates are necessarily like he's probably right about this umbrella of common sense. But what exactly are all of the components of that? And are those actually the fundamental things? Or are there even more fundamental things that lead to those things? And it feels that at least in this way, like, the sorts of things that Kant is talking about, like space, time, and cause, those are part of that notion of common sense. But it's the issue of, is he actually articulating like all of the things that go into it? Like you're saying, it ends up being much more complicated because he's only dealing with a handful. You know, anytime you articulate, well, here are the things that are the actual foundational things, you're at risk of not enumerating <laughs> all of them. I think that something like common sense and something like our minds are categorizing the world for us to help us understand it. It feels like that has to be true, but does it do that in exactly the ways that Kant or even a Reed articulate? Well, maybe not. But acknowledging that there is a gap between me and the world is important for acknowledging the reality of my situation. Yes. I don't experience the world in the way that, as Christians, we would say God experiences it. And that has implications for how I deal with things. I I find it somewhat hopeful because it means that human beings are, by nature, struggling to find God. And the story of the Bible is telling a story where God is reaching out to help people along. (laughs) So it's hopeful because as much as it's kind of a bummer that I'm not just like, I just got it. I'm just grasping it. 
the story that is presented to me in the Bible is that I don't have to be great at it, that God is more than happy to help me along if I'm trying to crawl around in the dark trying to find him. Yes. No, when we talk about the mercy of God, it's important to recognize that part of that can be in just helping us understand things because sometimes we're really bad at it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Brian. Well, I think this has been a somewhat illuminating conversation on Kant. We've hopefully articulated some things clearly so that folks might have a better grasp of possibly the most important philosopher since Aristotle. Thank you for giving us your time to talk about this great thinker. Thank you. If you have comments or questions, you can email us at podcast at gutenberg.edu. And we will be back in a little while to talk about more books and ideas which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College.